I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, very few spaceships. This is Dana. She came from California. Sorry, best title I could come up with. It'll make a little more sense when we look at the title of one of her books. So who is Dana? This is Dana Howard. And as I said in January, not here, maybe on Twitter or something, 2020 is the year in which we're going to focus on more women on the show. And today we're returning to both women and contactees with Dana Howard. Dana Howard was born in 1895 and was active in the contact scene of the 1950s, and she belonged to that strand of contacteeism that was steeped in older spiritualist traditions and uh, even more traditional religious overtones to a degree. There's a, there's a seance involved, for example, and she serves as yet another illustration that many of the things that contactees discussed and claimed in the 1950s and 60s were not necessarily new, nor were they exclusively a product of the space age. So, like a large number of post-George Adamski contacts, in her first book, the 1954 booklet My Flight to Venus, Dana Howard retconned herself to have had her contact experience before Adamski's, because everybody has to be first, right? Now, I have to admit that I've been unable to actually find a copy of My Flight to Venus. Fortunately, Howard uh, republished long quotations from it in all of her subsequent books, and I have a feeling the book is hard to come by because the same quotations from it seem to pop up in several different articles about Howard, and they're always the same. The only parts of My Flight to Venus I ever see quoted anywhere are parts that Howard herself quoted in later books that are much easier to find. So maybe I'm not alone in being uh, unable to get my hands on a copy. Here's Dana's account of this encounter, which she claimed took place in 1939. Still wrapped in the warm intoxication of the spirit, my vision was directed to a gnarled old tree overlooking the antediluvian hills. Leaning casually against the grotesque trunk was a woman being of unsurpassed loveliness. Her head was radiant with a crown of fire, strands of golden hair cascading gently over her beautiful, slightly olive-tinted shoulders. The strange mystic light flooding her dark prophetic eyes added a wistful something to all her other charms. I seemed to glide on rhythmic feet toward this lovely creature as though she were expecting me. She smiled her welcome. Have no fears, child of Earth. Let the doors of your mind be opened, and we of the faraway planets will speak to you in poetry and song. It was then I observed for the first time a beautiful rocket-shaped ship suspended in midair about 300 feet from the Earth. It was beyond mortal words to describe. In the main, it seemed to be constructed of some sort of translucent materials, but trimmed in gold and gem-studded. An almost invisible ladder extended from the ship to the earth, and I obediently followed the radiant being up the flimsy stairs without questioning. Once aboard, my sacrosanct companion vanished, and I never saw her again. Howard travels to Venus, where she lives for a while, marrying and raising a family, and she eventually returns to Earth. 
Dana's next encounter, which is one of the most interesting we've had, I think, comes in the 1950s and is recounted in her 1955 book, Diane, She Came from Venus. Now, now do you see what I did there with the title? Reverend Bertie Lily Candler, proclaimed by many as the greatest physical medium of the world, was holding a private seance at the Church of Divine Light, 837 South Parkview Street, Los Angeles, California. I had never attended a materialization seance before, and my inquiring mind asked all sorts of questions. As my cerebral atoms whirled with curiosity toward the close of the meeting, the little white church seemed to me electrified with a powerful vibration. Then, some ten or twelve feet from the draped-off area where Reverend Candler was deep in trance, I saw a rising glow of phosphorescence. It was very tall at first, but out of this phosphorescent substance, a form began to manifest itself. She was definitely different from the other spirit manifestations, a solid, fleshly being, delicate in charm and manner. She called for Dana. Overwhelmed with emotion I could not choke back, I went up to her, standing only inches away from the manifestation. While I did not recognize her instantly, I knew there was something quaintly familiar about her. Standing like a sylph-like goddess and bowing low in greeting to the twenty-seven persons present, the rich tones of her voice vibrated through the little church. I am Diane. I come from Venus. Once adjusted to the vibrations, she dwindled in size until I judged her to be about five feet tall. She tossed back the well-shaped head, revealing her perfectly chiseled features. There was no mistaking her identity. She was the same being of unsurpassed loveliness who 16 years earlier had escorted me to the waiting spaceship. I was speechless at first, my thoughts tumbling over one another. I finally managed to say, Are you my mentor? The person who has been giving me those wonderful discourses? Yes, this is the first time we of the great planets have been permitted to come to beings of Earth. From now on, we shall be with you, always. Diane then went into a few moments of profound discoursing, the content of which I could not recall later. Before taking her leave as if to reassure me that she was not an impostor, she placed a corner of her jeweled, bedecked garment in my hands that I might feel the texture of the fabric, materials I quickly identified as Venusian. She then went into a beautiful rhythmic dance described by one onlooker as the rhythm of the ocean waves. She finally bade us all good night, and with her fragile hand on my shoulder, she melted into the nothingness. So, there's no spaceship here, is there? Leave aside the Venusian fabric and the dance and the rest and concentrate on the lack of spaceship. Like I said earlier, many aspects of this are much more in the vein of spiritualist manifestations. So that's one fascinating aspect of this. Howard also, in her book, publishes a number of testimonials from others who are at the seance. A Lucille Points of Los Angeles had this to say. I have had the opportunity of sitting through many materialization seances, but I shall never forget one particular evening this spring when Reverend Bertie Lily Candler had one of her very interesting and inspiring seances. A beautiful fleshly being came, rather hesitantly at first, then saying, I am Diane. I come from Venus. Since I was sitting next to the draped-off place, I greeted this beautiful one asking, With whom do you wish to speak? She replied softly, I wish to speak with Dana. Dana Howard stepped up to her, but her recognition was not instantaneous. Dana asked, Do I know you? Diane replied, Why, yes, my dear. I've been with you before. I came for you when you made your flight to Venus. Mrs. Howard then asked her if the discourses she had been receiving since the publication of her book had been coming through her. Diane answered, Yes, I've been trying to help you write the experiences you had on Venus. 
She gave such an interesting talk with so much love and with a soft yet powerful voice. Then she gave us somewhat of a butterfly waltz as if floating on wings, her full flowing jeweled gown shining in the phosphorescent light. Yes, I can truly say this was the most outstanding experience of my life. Lucille points. One of the things I like about this, and I'm not sure this is an indicator of credibility, probably isn't, is that while the account matches the key points, the language and dialogue Miss Points replace, I, I said the word points and her name is Miss Points, that's weird. While the account matches in key details, the language and dialogue Ms. Points relates are not exactly what Dana said. The language is plainer. For example, on the question of whether or not this was the being who was relating information to Dana, Points reports a response of, yes, I've been trying to help you write the experiences you have on you, you had on Venus, as opposed to Dana Howard's, yes, this is the first time we have the great planets, blah, blah, blah. So it, that's a little more... I was going to say realistic sounding, but it's not really, is it? It's a, a lot more earthly and plain sounding, but Dana's version sort of strikes me more as how contactees might explain how Venusians would talk in that sort of grand sort of theatrical manner. But I'm not sure how realistic that is, uh, that is either. Um, also, and the sort of like eye rolling, really? column um the use of the word phosphorescent i mean it might be the best word it might be the, the the most apt word but there's a lot of phosphorescent going on between the two accounts so that kind of puts it in the you know not sure this is real category of course as you know we don't really concentrate much here on what's true or not in these stories because you'll either go insane or get really bored so there is another witness. There's other witnesses. Um, this one is named Gladys Campbell. And uh, along with her friend Maud, ha Maud Haas, um, that sounds like a George Lucas name, doesn't it? Maud Haas, bounty hunter from some place. Uh, anyway, they wrote a letter explaining the following. On April 29th, 1955, the writer, Mrs. Gladys Campbell, and my friend, Mrs. Maud Haas, attended a materialization seance at the Church of Divine Light, 837 South Parkview Street, Los Angeles, California. The medium being Reverend Bertie Lily Candler of Florida, one of the foremost materialization mediums of this country. I am more than happy to give an account of what I witnessed to the best of my recollection, and you will recall when you spoke at the Pyramid Church in Alhambra the following Sunday after the visit, I was the one who got up and verified your statements concerning the visit of Diane. It was truly a marvelous thing to be present and see for myself such a wonderful personality, and I know you must be very humble and gratified to have the facts that you brought before the public in your book, My Flight to Venus, substantiated in such an unexpected manner. Now that one, that's that's pretty vague. Not really a, a mark against it, but not very detailed. And the thing is, um, I read this one a, a few times and she's not, I mean, I guess she's verifying what she saw, but she's not really seeing what she saw. She's just saying, I'd be glad to verify what happened without really saying what actually happened other than there was a visit from Diane. Uh, very, very interesting. This reads less like a, a testimonial letter than a letter saying, I would be happy to give a testimonial, you know, and that never actually happens. And so you print the letter that says she'd be willing to give a testimonial. Now, the regular clergy being in charge of the church, a Beulah England, 
um, wrote a good testimonial letter and provides info on an interesting, I don't know, I guess the word would be corollary to the encounter that occurred at the seance. This is to state that I have known Reverend Bertie Lily Candler for many years and can honestly vouch for the authenticity of her work. She has worked in my church many, many times and has drawn her audiences from the highest brackets of society, doctors, lawyers, educators, and just plain everyday folks. I consider what happened at my church on April 29th a miracle. I no longer look upon it as a church, but as a shrine that will help many people with their problems. My only regret is that I missed part of Diane's appearance. It was growing late, and two or three of my guests had to leave by way of the back door to go home. When I returned, I saw the beautiful woman standing there and knew that nothing like it had ever come before. I sincerely believe it was not a spirit apparition, as the others had been, but a physical being from another planet. Whether she was teleported direct from Venus, or whether she came from one of the spaceships seen by members of the Air Force over Mrs. Howard's hometown at the same time she appeared in my church, I do not know. I do know this is the greatest privilege Reverend Beulah England will have in this lifetime. Sincerely, Reverend Beulah England. Okay, now let's leave aside England's odd use of the third person there. And look at the fact that at the same time Dana was manifesting, at the, or rather Diana was manifesting at the seance, there was a UFO sighting in Desert Hot Springs, California, where Dana Howard lived. Howard explains the situation this way. The appearance of the lovely Diane in the Little White Church in Los Angeles is only one side of the miracle that occurred on April 29, 1955. Out in the desert where your author resides during resort season, another miracle had happened. Mrs. Barbara McDonald, a member of the Ground Observation Corps, a civilian agency attached to the Air Force, reported that her Skywatchers had broadcast four strange ships seen high in the desert skies during the week of Diane's visitation. There was no chance for error here, no exaggerated rumors, for all sightings were the result of observers detailed to duty. Air Force volunteers whose task it is to spot and report any unusual happening or any alien ship seen in the skies. These Skywatchers, working different shifts, all gave the same account. Mrs. McDonald reports that H.A. Mooney, a young man well-trained in sky phenomenon and only just out of the Navy, stated he saw a huge ship very high over the desert skies and traveling at a startling rate of speed. Although the ship was of gargantuan size, there was no tail fire and it was absolutely noiseless. Mooney stated it revealed a long row of odd-looking portholes from which streamed radiant fire. It vanished into nothingness before his eyes. So, we have a physical manifestation of a person at a seance with a number of witnesses, and strange visitations in the sky going on in the contactee's town at the same time. But, in our usual fashion, as I said, let's not get too bogged down in reasons why or why not a particular contactee's claims might be true or false. Rather, let's look at what the message from the contactee actually is. We'll do that after this short announcement break, and we'll look at Dana Howard's wider reach in the Flying Saucer community. Next time on The Saucer Life, we're going to look at a book I just got in the mail, but that I've been meaning to pick up since about 1995, when it appeared in a cloud of controversy. Or maybe 94, I can't remember. Yes, it's Leah Haley's children's book, Sito's New Friends. I was going to talk about it in one of the short afterlife episodes we do, but while the book is short, the impact it had and the reactions it caused were extensive, so it's definitely episode worthy. 
You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thanks very much to those who've donated in the past. It's much appreciated, and it's how I bought my copy of Cito's New Friends. Also, if you're listening to this the day it's released, um, in the last week of April, I think, this coming weekend, May 1st through 3rd, I'll be speaking at PhenomenaCon, an online paranormal conference. Um, everything's online uh, these days. There's a fun lineup of speakers, and it's only 15 bucks. You can check it out at PhenomenaCon.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life. You can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by post at Media. P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life, as I assume you realize since you're listening to it, is available anywhere you can find podcasts. And now, back to Dana Howard. Well, actually, back to me talking about Dana Howard. I kind of made her sound like a weather reporter or something. So, the content of the message, well... One thing that comes through is the geographical significance of California to Howard's story. In particular, one place that has become synonymous with the landscape of the weird. This is where the hitherto unsolved mystery of Mount Shasta might shed some small measure of light over the broad scope of doubt. For several hundred years past, the tall pine-treed cliffs of Mount Shasta have held inviolate a secret believed by many to embrace a long-dead tradition. There are geologists and other men of science who proclaim it the oldest land on Earth, a consecrated plot cut off from that mythical continent known as Lemuria. It is believed by many that in some miraculous way this plot of Earth escaped the cataclysms of long ago. For many years, Mount Shasta has been the object of serious investigations, not only by the few steeped in occult lore and traditional romanticism, but by scientists, the press, educators, and just good neighbors living in the valleys beneath the high peaks. Untold numbers have given evidence that on occasions too numerous to mention, they have seen streams of blue-white light emanating from the Shasta Heights. These lights appeared long before Thomas Edison gave us electric light, and it is said they often extended a beam as far south as the San Francisco Bay. This ties in perfectly with the words of my charming Venusian host. There are many contact points on your planet Earth, he said, points of ingress and egress from planet to planet. These are the pivotal points in universal consciousness because here the fragmentary remains of great continental histories are stored away in secret archives. So, leaving aside the goofier New Age aspects of this, <clears throat> Lemuria, if we think of Mount Shasta as being representative of, of a portal area or other places where otherworldly or other-dimensionally weird things can bleed through into our reality, this fits into the wider world of the paranormal quite well. And also, it, it sort of you know, lays the foundation or, or sort of backfills the foundation for Diane appearing during one of these seances. Um, it sort of establishes this precedent of teleportation of one kind or another. More generally, Howard's message, well, Diane's message, but you know what I mean, is that humanity is destined to ascend to a higher plane of consciousness, the same plane on which the Venusians and, and other peoples exist. But sharing this message is tricky, and like nearly every UFO type before and after her, Howard has to address the eternal question, in her words, quote, if flying saucers are real, why do they appear to obscure individuals in isolated places? 
Her answer involves the Egyptian pharaoh Ikhnaton, also known as Akhenaten or Amenhotep IV, who attempted to convert Egypt to the monotheistic worship of the god Aten. It didn't take, though, and Egypt returned to its traditional religious forms after the end of his reign. Um, that might be the most point-for-point bit of this podcast that has ever directly overlaid stuff I say in my actual world history classes. That was actually kind of cool. Anyway, Dana Howard explains that um, Akhenaten was, in fact, a channel for the Venusians, but humanity was not ready for his message. His message, of course, is that, you know, Aten is God, the only God, and that this God is the same God as all the other gods that are the real God, but not the fake God. So this, the trouble and strife that came out of Akhenaten's attempt to give the truth to the Egyptian people is why later attempts to raise humanity's level of consciousness had to be more careful. Before Ignaton, the mad pharaoh, passed, he told his people he had received a message from God. It seems God told him that never again would a world-shaking message be given to a ruler or one in high places. God saw the havoc and bloodshed that had come from bringing such a message to the reigning pharaoh. Perhaps that is how it should be. Should the news of visitations from other planets be suddenly broadcast from every radio, headlined by the newspapers, depicted in drama on television, panic would be sure to follow. Pandemonium would reign over the face of the Earth. Many of us have not forgotten what happened when Orson Welles' men from Mars came over the airwaves. Why should this be so? How many in our world of today would be willing to meet them peaceably? We would deem it our patriotic duty to start our own little war, this would be a natural consequence for the warring instinct is stronger in the mass of humanity than the heartthrob of brotherly love. This then is one of the major reasons why alien knowledge and extraneous experience must first be given to the isolated few. When the word is passed along by them, the reception is imperceptibly slow. It infiltrates gradually and mass equilibrium is not distributed. It is the way of the masses to align themselves with the majority and the plurality in this case are the non-believers. It's always nice to see a War of the Worlds radio scare reference in these things. And honestly, gosh, I mean, that's basically the same kind of idea that that's, you know, given to that in, in answer to the question of why don't they land on the White House lawn? But I think Dana Howard did the best job of expressing it clearly um, that humanity is not ready. And so the message must go through these other, I mean, pardon the pun, channels, and it's very slow. We're stuck with prophets like Dana Howard who are doomed to be ignored by the majority. But slowly, over time, the message will penetrate, and the Venusians are on our side. The Venusians dwell in peace and happiness. In their hearts, they want us to know that peace too. Human hearts are weeping today because of the turmoil in which they must live. If we were given a choice, most of us would like to run away from the explosions of the world. Of course, our atomic obsessions, greed, and other issues continue to stand in their way. In 1957, another book, Over the Threshold, appeared and covered much of the same ground as Diana She Came from Venus. Here's an example of Diana's messages to Dana in this subsequent book. My daughter, your planet Earth will soon evolve to its next higher octave. 
we of the more exalted planes have come to aid and assist our brothers in developing these higher skills. Many long years have you sought conquest of the ethers. Your intuition has told you there is a deeper, purer manifestation of life than you earthlings know anything about. When you have learned to know and balance the elements, when you are willing to cooperate in the broader plan, you will then be certain there are worlds within worlds, each one held intact with the other. You will understand that each not only carries its individual tone, but can reach out and embrace the others. Now, perhaps I'm giving her short shrift here, but between reiterate, a word I can't say, between reiterated ideas and long quotations from her previous books, Over the Threshold was kind of a chore to get through, and in the interest of time, I want to move on to some of her appearances in the wider flying saucer world before dipping into one more book. In 1955, in the magazine Flying Saucer News, this announcement appeared. My Flight to Venus by Dana Howard. A most unusual story. Represents a most fantastic experience ever experienced by mankind. Forward is by Dr. Gilbert N. Holloway. This book contains the Venus formula for happiness, etc. It is a story of life and love on Venus as the author lived it. That is some... That is some actually fairly straightforward, honest ad copy about a contactee book. Dana Howard's book, uh, this one in particular, would be sold through Flying Saucer News um, for a long time, and the announcement slash description of it would become more enthusiastic a couple months down the road. My Flight to Venus by Dana Howard. Dana Howard is terrific. She has written a good reading story. It is so good that we have sold as many as 50 in one day in our little bookshop, which is really way off the beaten path. Besides writing, Mrs. Howard also paints, and in this sense, we mean an artist. We have an original by Mrs. Howard on a screen. It is good. Come and see it. A real flying saucer dome in color. See it at our bookshop. I love that. I love it for its simple enthusiasm and fanishness and the strangely contorted writing. Mrs. Howard paints, and in this sense, we mean an artist. I know what they mean. I mean, I, I mean, I know what they mean, but it's got a clumsy charm to it, doesn't it? And I want to believe, I want to imagine that that blurb was written by some 17-year-old kid who has just had his mind blown by reading Dana Howard's UFO book. Um, I do realize it probably was written by somebody, you know, who wasn't 17, like a super enthusiastic 17 year old, but I want to believe, right? Dana Howard also did some reporting, uh, for flying saucer news in the 1950s. Um, at least in 1955 in the April issue, she reported on the second annual giant rock flying saucer convention which I thought took place took place in the summers, so I'm not sure which one she was talking about or when the April issue actually came out, but she reported on Giant Rock. Most of those present felt they were no longer living in our troubled 20th century, but in some strange way they'd been projected into the year 2000 and the New Age. The speaker's platform was like a modern platonic symposium, with Plato and his colleagues standing by. Most of those who had had something to say because they have had unusual experiences were from the ranks of the unlettered and the unsung. However, the stories they had to tell, stories where there was no hesitancy in the telling, 
would have sent our top flight scientists, our philosophers, and our educators scurrying to cover. The chosen ones took no credit to themselves for their advanced knowledge on the baffling subjects of the day, but rather gave all the credit to their space teachers. Two, few of the crowd of some 3,000 were drawn from the ranks of the curious. There was no apprehension about invasion displayed, but rather, they were all interested in finding a better way of life. If other planets have it, why can't we? She covered the big names who were there, including George Adamski and Dan Fry. She also related the story of Richard Miller. Outstanding among them was a young chap named Richard Miller of Prescott, Arizona, who maintains he was flown for 12 hours in a 150-foot diameter saucer after being picked up outside of Detroit. Miller was told by the commander of the ship named Soltek that our Earth is moving into a huge cloud of deadly cosmic rays, and there are some three and a half million space people in ships screening the Earth against this deadly radiation. Strangely enough, this ties in with yours truly's message from space people some six weeks ago. And before I forget, I was there too, talking about my flight to Venus. Miller had contacted the aliens along with some friends in Detroit by building a transmission device of some kind, and by this time he'd hooked up with George Hunt Williamson, who we've met before. We'll be seeing more of Richard Miller in um, a future episode as well, so don't worry. So in 1958, Howard wrote a lengthy article for the British publication Flying Saucer Review, in which she compared her own encounters with angelic or Marian encounters, such as the um, the uh, the Fatima thing or uh, Lourdes in uh, France. Um, indeed, modern paranormal writers like Reagan Lee have made extensive studies of the comparisons between Dana's experiences and those of Fatima or Lourdes. And while Howard is careful not to say that all of these Marian or angelic apparitions or encounters are space beings, um, she does note that there are some similarities and that space beings could be a plausible explanation uh, explanation for it. Um, and one of the things she does in this article is uh, talks about the fact that there are shrines at places like Fatima where the Virgin Mary had appeared. And so she was working on building a shrine at, um, you know, in California, where the craft had been sighted while she was having Diane's apparition show up and talk to her at the seance. So not only does Howard draw the parallels between these different sort of events, she uh, tries to create an American version of the kinds of pilgrimage sites that had sprung up in Europe, uh, in France, and in Portugal. So one more book um, from Dana Howard that I want to look at is called Up Rainbow Hill. And this came out in 1959. And it's in a lot of ways more of the same, except there are some tie-ins to a person who we're going to be examining in a not-too-distant future episode named Otis T. Carr, an inventor on par with Tesla. Um, Dana Howard says, and there's some very sort of American-centric stuff in here. In, in one section, she quotes extensively from George Washington, and then she has the following to say about the United States and the destiny of the United States. America is the land where the least can become the greatest. For many years, it was the rule rather than the exception that the office boy might become the president. We struggled up the hard way. 
We believed we were working with aim and purpose. We wanted to be free from tyranny. Europe had wallowed in war and destruction until this had become our daily diet. The god of hate was Europe's deus ex machina of growth. We dare not found our space age on the same decadent base. It is time we destroyed the old pattern. The Washington and the Lincoln qualities of nobility have virtually vanished. The basic principles upon which we founded our nation are no longer operative. But America at least has a smaller cosmic debt to pay than her blood-soaked neighbors. It is not difficult to understand why the seeds of the new dispensation should be sown right here in America. Now, here's the thing. This is weird. This is weird. Um, sort of the spirit of Washington and Lincoln and the, the decadence and, and warlike nature of, of Europe and the pure sort of new world America that's the counterpoint to the decadent old world. This is something that is, is an attitude, an idea that is so much more in keeping with the 1939 date of when Dana supposedly first met Diane than it is in the 1959 when, um, I forgot the name of the book, Up Rainbow Hill, what, I had to look over at it, Up Rainbow Hill was published. It's a very pre-American entry into World War II sort of isolationist attitude that that you know Europe's affairs are best left to Europe. Um, the less blood-soaked thing by by 1959, we dropped a couple atomic bombs, and we were the only ones to do that at that point. Um, I almost wonder if this is a bit that had been written before that she then inserted in a reasonable seeming portion of Up Rainbow Hill in 1959 because given the geopolitics of 1959 it 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 just doesn't seem to work it works much better in an earlier era so dana howard um a, a contactee that of the sort of obscure i don't want to say d level but sort of way down the list of contactees that that even ufo people have heard of Dana Howard is probably the most interesting of a fairly obscure bunch uh, for a number of reasons. Most telling of which is the uh, the the physical manifestation of Diane at that séance in 1954. Is the message that Diane transmitted to us through Dana unique, special? Not particularly. It's not bad. It's well presented, but the basic ideas are, are very similar to what we've seen before. And I think Dana Howard's contactee experience is notable not only for that, that physical manifestation, but for an indicator of the relative uniformity of philosophical outlook among the contactees. I know it's sort of a truism to say that they all sort of had peaceful space brothers urging peace, but you see it come up from a variety of people, from a variety of backgrounds in a variety of ways. And you also, with this, have the sort of ancient history connection, this time with Akhenaten and uh, and, and the ancient Egyptians. Uh, you, you've got some name drops of Lemuria. And like I said at the beginning, it's this very, very clear example of how um, pre-flying saucer spiritualism had seeped into the flying saucers of the space age. Okay, next time it will be Cito's new friends. Remember, thanks for listening. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media 
working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.